Hello everyone, it's that time of the week again and it's time to talk some world-class tennis. This is Sakit, joined by Matt and uh, there's plenty going around in the tennis world. Hey Matt, how are you? Doing well, Sakit. Great to be back with you. Yeah, so uh, we we had a pretty engaging chat last time on, on the Hall of Fame tennis, but there were other tennis tournaments that were played uh, on the Red Clay of Europe, which you briefly touched upon. And we have a uh, couple of very interesting uh, winners uh, from Italy uh, winning both those tournaments. And uh, one is Fabio Fonini, and the other is uh, the Roland Garros star, uh, Marco Cecchinato. So, Matt, I know you mentioned how the tour works, and uh, these points and these tournaments are very important. They may not be, you know, going with the trend of hardcore tennis, but still these are, like, worthy events. And we had some interesting matches. So, Marco Giacchinato, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, he's won twice this year and then throw in the semifinals of Roland Garros. Is this guy becoming a legit clay court exponent that someone we will be, you know, talking and writing about come come next year? I think that's absolutely the case, Bakib. A lot of people legitimately felt, if in private, if not in public, that after the big run to the Roland Garros semifinals, in early June, that a target would be on Cecchinato's back. Uh, and maybe that target existed regardless, but whatever the case, he handled that target very well in Umag, Croatia, and he picked off one of those 250 ATP clay titles in this post-Wimbledon summer clay season. So the fact that he was able to go into Croatia and take care of business, and he beat Guido Pella, in the final, Pella being the person who upset Marin Cilic at Wimbledon, that's a quality win. That is not beating a tomato can or a cream puff in the final. That's a good, solid win in that championship match. So, Cecchinato's ability to immediately wear a target on clay and deliver the goods, that marks him as, a, as an upper-tier clay court player. Of course, he didn't do much of anything at Wimbledon, on grass and hard courts, he is anything but a proven entity. When we talk about clay court specialists or surface specialists in tennis of any kind, a lot of fans will think that that is a subtle criticism, but you have to be very good on a surface to earn that designation. If you, if you are moderately good on clay, moderately good on various surfaces, and you're never able to max out on one surface, that makes you a more mediocre player compared to a specialist who is able to max out. The highest example, the ultimate example of a clay court specialist is Dominic Thiem. He's playing the ATP 500 tournament in Hamburg this week. He has not been able to do much on, on grass or hard courts either, but on clay he's been able to make a Roland Garros final, He's made the semis or better at Roland Garros three straight years. So at least he does max out when he's on clay, and that is a great credit to him. Obviously, a number of people in the tennis world, myself very much included, think that team has the talent to do well on surfaces other than clay. So that's why calling him perhaps a clay court specialist feels like a bit of a, a disappointment and also a criticism. But on a general level, at least he does the most with his game on clay that can't be said for a lot of other players. And so for Cecchinato, not quite at team's level, but nevertheless able to win that tournament in Umag 
right after Wimbledon, it does show that he is here to stay on clay. He's not going to fade from the limelight. He's not going to flinch from challenges on that surface. Yes, we would all do well to uh, minimize his chances on summer hard courts coming up in North America, but nevertheless, the ability to win in Umag speaks very highly from him, and that, that achievement should not be underestimated. So, Saka, I've just spoken about one Italian winner on clay in this summer season after Wimbledon. Let's go to the other one, Fabio Fanini, who won the Swedish Open. Uh, what are What is your assessment of him, either in terms of the week he had in Sweden or in terms of a larger context in what uh, last week might have meant for him on clay? Uh, it's, just, it's funny. I think I would uh, take the larger context because it's with Panini. Even if he won something, you don't know what, what transpires. And most people who don't know about him, I would strongly suggest if you're watching Grand Slam tennis when it's, uh, you know, on ESPN, uh, do make a point uh, to watch Fabio Fonini. He's one of the most charismatic, one of the most talented guys on the tour. I would go even this far. If you take the serve up, his ground strokes are as good as any of the top men, you know, in the game. Uh, his footwork is impeccable. I've seen him coach side at the U.S. Open, at Miami Open. The guy is just a tennis genius. And, uh, again, like, like most geniuses, you know, he can check out of a match. Like, uh, last year's U.S. Open, he lost to countrymen, I think Stefano Travaglia, uh, in a very, you know, uncharacteristic loss of a top player. And that to a countryman. And then that was also a very unfortunate event when he made some, uh, not so wise comments and uh, not so nice comments to the Lions woman and then was, uh, rightfully penalized. But sticking to his tennis, I mean, this guy can really bring it on. And uh, I'll go back to his hiring of Franco Davin, who used to coach Juan Martin Del Potro. When these two guys teamed up at the end of 2016, I was not sure. Uh, again, because with Fanini, you know, he's, he's one of those guys who's, who's made his move and has lived between, I think, 17 and 30 in the ranking spot. And uh, to me, that commitment when you bring, like, that kind of a coach who was also interviewed by, I think, or tried with Grigor Dimitrov, and since then, he's won, I think, three tournaments. He does have, uh, you know, his own peaks and valleys, and this is his second clay court tournament this year. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the larger context, uh, Fonini is number 11 in the race for London, which is tennis's version of playoffs. The top eight men will qualify based on a full uh, calendar year, which spans, I think, close to 46 weeks. So if Fonini is number 11 come July, I mean, that's just a testimony because he's known to check out of matches or he can get emotionally, you know, bothered. He could be winning a match with one of those guys. You tune in and you don't know if he's winning. If you look at the scoreboard, you say, wow, this guy is winning. But he just broke a racket and he's talking to himself. He's talking to the to the chair. You know, he's that kind of a guy. He's a personality. You know, he's uh, he's, he's pretty wild, but at the same time, he has a game. And not many would forget his uh, comeback against uh, Rafael Nadal at the 2015 U.S. Open under the lights uh, when people were leaving, you know, and he came back. Uh, they thought it was a done deal, and Nadal's up with the lead, and then Fanini wins that match. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, in the larger context, Matt, definitely we can keep an eye on Fanini. And unlike Cecchinato, uh he's had some good hardcore results, uh, but he usually struggles against players who have, I think, uh, Easy power on, on serve like a Chilich or a uh, or a Kyrgios or a Del Potro, but for ground, I think you know if they were, like I said, if, if you could just rally, he's he's as good as anyone, and he can pull the trigger on the backhand, and his forehand is very picturesque. 
again, I, I, I'm sounding like a fan, but I think, yeah, I don't agree with a lot of stuff he does. Uh, but for pure tennis and for, you know, for pure, pure tennis talent, this guy is up there. And it's, and it's going to be an interesting story if he can keep somewhat uh, in striking distance to that uh, eighth spot in London. I mean, still, Novak Djokovic is, you know, now fully back in business. So, and we expect Andy Murray to make a run. I don't know if, if London is going to be on cards for Murray. But, uh, you know, it, it's going to be tough for Fonini to keep this, but it's it's really fun to have him in the mix. We still have like four and a half months to go. Uh, but, yeah, uh, we never know with Fonini, but he's won his seventh title, and most of them have come on clay. Uh, so, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's keep uh, uh, track of his progress, how the year unfolds from here on. So that being said, uh, we can talk about a big tournament that's coming up. Uh, it's going to be played in Washington, uh, D.C., the capital, uh, City Open, and it's a, it's, it's a mixed field. Both men and women are going to be there, and this tournament has had some really great winners in the past from the likes of Lendl and, and Agassi and, you know, and so on. Uh, so, Matt, when you look at this tournament, of course, we don't know uh, the draws yet. The draws probably will be made uh, on Friday. But just for the highlights, what, what what is, exci uh, is exciting you about this tournament? Uh, what are you getting excited in terms of, as a fan, like who are you looking forward to uh, to follow uh, when, the, when the action starts? The big highlight, Sakib, is Sloane Stevens. Uh, not just because she's an American and not just because she made the Roland Garros final and not just because she won the U.S. Open roughly a month after playing Washington last year. What's particularly interesting about Stevens is this. When she came to Washington a year ago, she was just beginning her recuperation from injury. So she was rusty. And if you recall, Sakib, her first round match in Washington last year was against Simona Halep. And the first set that they played was a tiebreaker set. It was extremely close, could have gone either way. Halep was able to win that set. And then in the second set, Stevens faded. And it wasn't because of her attitude. It wasn't because of deficiencies as a competitor. It was more of the conditions in Washington were brutal, as they often are. Very hot, very humid, not easy to, to endure in that heat and humidity if, if you don't have an established fitness base. Stevens was still in the process of reestablishing that base of fitness. And obviously, she did establish it en route to the U.S. Open title. But at that point, the, her summer hardcourt season was just beginning, so she didn't have her legs under her. So in many ways, it, that loss to Halep in Washington a year ago was the beginning of a process in which Stevens relearned how to compete, how to marry body and mind, how to put all the components of her game together, the components that we saw merged so beautifully and effectively in the latter rounds of the U.S. Open against Venus Williams in the semifinals when she flourished at the very end of a dramatic three-set match and then when she dismantled Madison Keys in the final. So what's different this year, Sakib, it's not just that Stevens has the target on her back as a result of success in recent major tournaments. It's a little bit more than that. Last year, when... Stevens made the progression from Washington to Canada to Cincinnati to the U.S. Open. She was physically fresh. She was coming back from a long layoff. 
One might recall that Marin Cilic at the 2014 U.S. Open and Rafael Nadal at the 2013 U.S. Open benefited from long layoffs, either due to suspension in Cilic's case or injury in Nadal's case. That physical freshness is precisely what enabled them to make a big run in the summer hardcourt season when a lot of other players who have not been injured uh, are tired and have a lot of tread on the tires who have a lot of mileage on the odometer. So Stevens is entering this 2018 summer hardcourt season in Washington from a very different vantage point compared to 2017. This time, Stevens is not going to be the supremely fresh uh player who has a lot more energy in the tank compared to her competitors. She's going to be on a relatively level footing. So can she produce the same high quality of tennis this upcoming summer in North America that she did last year? And Washington last year was the beginning of a growth process for her. This year, Washington is going to feel very different, and that's why Sloan's presence in this tournament is so fascinating. I'm going to be very interested to see which version of Sloan Stevens we have at this tournament. What also makes this tournament interesting, Saka, not just Stevens, but you also have Naomi Osaka as the third seed. She, of course, won Indian Wells on hardcourt in March and announced herself as a major presence on hardcourts. Osaka's game doesn't pop, and her ground strokes don't click together to the same extent on clay because of the slow pace of the court or on grass because of the lower bounces and and the less comfortable hitting zone that she has. But on hard courts, she's in her strike zone. She She hits the ball the way she wants to. So seeing Osaka back on hard courts, that's also going to be a very attractive draw in Washington. So... Those two players, plus also Wimbledon fourth-round participant Belinda Bencich, who is one of the top eight seeds, uh, those three players, uh, but especially Stevens and Osaka, uh, are going to be marquee draws in Washington, at least from my perspective. So with that having been said, looking at the WTA side of Washington, Sakib, what are your feelings on the ATP side? Now, last year... We had Kevin Anderson and Alexander Zverev in the final. And what's interesting about the backdrop there, as I pass this over to you, is that at the U.S. Open, Anderson and Zverev were supposed to play in the third round, but Zverev got taken out by Borna Chorich. And many people in the tennis community feel, even today, that had Zverev beaten Chorich instead of being upset in the second round, that Zverev would have stopped Kevin Anderson in the third round. So one could say that uh, Zverev's loss to Chorich is precisely what enabled Kevin Anderson uh, to build his career to the extent that he has over these past 12 months. So with that as the background, Sakib, how do you see this, dub- this ATP tournament unfolding in Washington, and what are the main storylines that you are going to have your eyes on in the nation's capital? All right, before I, uh, you know, talk about uh, what players I'm, I'm looking forward to and what stories, but I'll answer your question. And uh, I respectfully uh, disagree this time, Matt. I, I know uh, that's always a narrative, but in tennis you have to win, especially in a major seven matches. And Zverev Anderson, it happens all the time. The seeded uh, matchups don't materialize because someone else 
just shows up that day and plays better tennis. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's always been the case, you know. Uh, and I and I gave up on those theories because uh, you know you remember Richard Krejcik, he had the greatest winning record against uh, Pete Sampras, and uh, you know Marcelo Rios was doing against Agassi. A lot of times these matches did not happen, but Agassi and Sampras were more consistent. They kept their end of the bargain, and Krejcik and uh, Rios did not. Uh, and that being said, uh, I do agree that Alexander Zverev, uh, if he's healthy and fit, uh, probably has you know slightly more range. Uh, and more consistency, he would have beaten Kevin Anderson, but I, I would not think it's a knock on Anderson. The draws do open all the time, and uh, yeah, and that brings me yeah, and I want to talk about same guys. I want to talk about Sasha Zverev, you know, also known as uh, you know his real name is Alexander Zverev, but now uh, he goes by Sasha Zverev. Uh, last year he used this very platform in Washington. Uh, I think he saved a match points against Richard Gasquet of France, uh, and then went on to uh, win the tournament, and then had a Great week uh, next week across the border in Montreal when he be, uh, defeated Roger Federer and Nick Kyrgios on the way to win his uh, second Masters 1000. Uh, a few things have changed. Uh, Zverev is a year older, wiser. Uh, his presence in the press room and uh, he's just got more exposure. Uh, at the same time, he had a great run at French Open, which, you know, in the process also hurt his body because he played uh, three long, grueling five-set matches and, uh, you know, came down with a compromising uh, 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 hamstring injury against the uh, Dominic team in French Open and since then hasn't had quite the momentum. Uh, kind of uh, came into Wimbledon, you know, without matches, lost to Ernest Wilbur. And now there's good news on the Zverev side. Uh, looks like uh, he's been spotted in Florida training uh, with Ivan Lendl, who, according to me, is the only super coach, you know, who really, you know, is, is more of a... Uh, how do I say it? Nothing to take away from Becker, Edberg, and some of the other guys. But uh, I still think uh, Lendl made a big difference with Andy Murray. And he's one of the guys. He's a taskmaster. You know, he's won eight Grand Slams. All the records, Sampras and, you know, Djokovic and Federer are breaking, were once owned by Lendl for consistency. So when he speaks, I think Zwerer would listen. So if this partnership is for real, uh, this could be a very important and uh, event in Sasha Zwerer's career. I'm not saying he's going to win the U.S. Open, but you could definitely see a very different approach. And uh, Lendl's a man of process, and I'm sure uh, the partnership wouldn't really reflect all the changes they will work upon, but Zverev is like an excellent work in progress. He can beat anyone on any given day. Uh, so, I'm Matt, I'm not sure if this playing Washington is going to be a, a deal in the long run, because if he goes deep here, then he has to play in Toronto. And if he again goes deep here, either he withdraws Cincinnati or he'll be an early casualty in Cincinnati, uh, like he lost to uh, Francis TFO last year. So he's someone, you know, like, if he has the right frame of mind and the body is listening, like there's no legal, uh, I expect him to be a real factor at the U.S. Open. Of course, we're like a month away. Uh, but, yeah, I'm excited uh, purely with the addition of Lendl to the Zverev camp. Uh, looks like the rumors have been, you know, uh, floating around and there's a picture of them. Uh, at a practice court in Florida. Uh, and let me talk about the second player, and that's the other guy you mentioned, Kevin Anderson. Uh, both these guys, you know, had a great run in Washington. Uh, in Washington and uh, Kevin Anderson is coming after uh, a U.S. Open final, which he backed up this year by reaching the Wimbledon final. And we've spoken about that at length. And uh, this guy, rightfully so, 
I think, uh, just has taken a break and now will resurface uh, hopefully Monday, Tuesday in Washington. And uh, and he's someone who plays big boy tennis. His ground games has really improved. He's just not a serve, you know, serve, serve bot, like as they call him. Uh, he can he can control points from the baseline for a guy his size. He's exceptional in movement. And, uh, and like, I, I just don't want to repeat, but he definitely backed his claim what he told me in Miami that he's a legit top five player when he's firing in all accounts. And uh, I do look forward to what he brings in because this is exactly uh, the place, you know, which uh, which which was responsible where he played his best tennis to make that ascend to the U.S. Open final. So it's, it's a very important week uh, for these two guys. And, uh, of course, it's a very loaded men's field. And uh, let us let me throw in one more name in there, Matt, uh, so get bonus. I know this guy has been working on his comeback for a while. Magnus Norman is back coaching him. What do you make of Stan Wawrinka? Uh, and what are your expectations uh, for the former three-time major champion uh, when he takes the court in, in D.C. next week? Well, we, one has to remember that when Stan Wawrinka beat Grigor Dimitrov in the first round of Wimbledon, Dimitrov, of course, having been a former Wimbledon semifinalist, having been a major semifinalist as recently as 2017 at the Australian Open, it was easy to think that that result was more a commentary on how much Vavrinka had advanced in the tennis community rather than how far Dimitrov had regressed. But when Vavrinka lost his next Wimbledon match to Fabiano, who is not an accomplished grass court player, we all realized that the Vavrinka-Dimitrov result was indeed much more of a commentary on Dimitrov's regression than on Vavrinka's progress. So Vavrinka, being realistic, he can't expect too much of himself. And I think that he's playing Washington, an ATP 500 event, before the Canada and Cincy Masters to just give himself a gauge of where his game stands. It's, it's an exploratory tournament. So if if Vavrinka plays only one match and loses, it's not a crisis for him. It's not even a setback. I think the main thing he needs to avoid is injury. And I think if he can just play his way into a few tournaments, just getting even one or two wins uh, these next few weeks, that's a step forward for him. I think if he can just – in many ways, Vavrinka is in the situation now – entering Washington, that Sloan Stevens occupied a year ago. And so these next weeks are not really about winning so much as getting used to another rhythm on tour, finding a sense of fitness and stability with the body. If if Vavrinka can feel comfortable in his own skin entering the U.S. Open, if, if these next few weeks of play in North America can achieve that modest goal, then Vavrinka won't be in a position to win the U.S. Open. That's not going to happen, not with Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer ruling the roost. But if if Vavrinka can feel comfortable about his body and his game entering the U.S. Open, he can make a fourth-round run. Maybe if, if the draw really lines up for him, a quarter-final run, that would be an excellent springboard towards the fall season where he can make a legitimate run at the Masters tournaments in Shanghai and then Bercy in Paris. And he could walk away from the 2018 season 
with a relatively restored game, and he could then realistically dream big at the 2019 Australian Open, and then he could once again have the vision of being able to win major titles. But that should not be part of the picture in his ramp-up this next month before the U.S. Open. This is about establishing fitness, establishing comfort with his game once again, being able to achieve a modest result at the U.S. Open. If he can put those things together, he can enter the autumn with a relatively restored game and then enter 2019 with the championship aspirations that he legitimately harbored in 2014, 15, and 16. I think as you touched upon, you know, some very interesting points with Bobrinka's, uh, you know, this comeback that's been going on, going on and off since he came back and played, you know, that match in Australia. Uh, yeah, he's another guy, you know, who's, who's won majors and, you know, he's part of that, you know, elite, you know, men's, uh, you know, men's circle, the, the limited players, uh, number that has gone on to win majors. And, uh, yeah, he, he'll be an interesting watch, but I think I agree with you. It's about playing uh, pain-free and see what the new limits are for his body post-surgery. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, matches and momentum are probably the only thing he's looking at this point. Uh, winning will find its own, you know, its own way, and maybe he can be a factor if he's healthy, like you said, uh, come next year. So I think, Matt, uh, is, is there anyone uh, else uh, you want to talk about on either men or women's side before we bring in Jane Boyd, who's going uh, to be coming to the tournament? Yeah, I would only quickly mention Hyung Chung, that he, like Bavrinka, is coming to Washington, having played very little tennis the past several months, also in a place where it's just about restoring body and mind, restoring comfort and rhythm on a tennis court, uh, expecting all the pieces of his game to come together right away is, is, you know, that's a nice aspiration to have, but it's probably too ambitious redeveloping a comfort zone really is the, is the main thing for him. But I'll be very interested to see how he tries to put the pieces back together in Washington. Okay, we have still a couple of minutes to kill uh, before we bring Jane in. Uh, so, Matt, uh, Marin Vaida, you know, who's uh, been a phenomenal, you know, presence in Novak Djokovic's team, who we all know came back, Djokovic reached out to him. Uh, just uh, speak a couple of minutes about the importance, uh, you know, because I did mention super coaches like Lendl. And Becker was there, but I always believed that Vida was the rock on Djokovic's side. And when Djokovic, you know, whenever he won a major, Vida was in the box. Fine, Becker gave him some, you know, mental toughness or maybe uh, some, you know, some walling skills or some, some, you know, some secrets from one champion to another. But Marin Vida, you know, let's not even deny for a second that has been the main guy in Novak's camp. And it's so good to see him back uh, when Novak won his fourth Wimbledon. The, the main insight from Vida, and uh, I would encourage our listeners to find uh, our friend Sasa Osmo, uh, a Serbian journalist who covers Djokovic regularly. You can find him on Twitter. He puts forth a lot of good content on Djokovic, and also the, a number of the people who cover Djokovic with him uh, also deliver some very good stories. And there was a story this past week, uh, an interview which Vida did in which he opened up about his relationship with Djokovic and the nature of his coaching. And I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but Vida made a reference to tennis being a lot more than connecting with Buddha. And that, that reference might not create a spark of recognition 
for the casual tennis fan, but for the insider, the tennis insider who follows this industry closely, it was a great quote because that was a reference to Pepe Aymas, uh, a, 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 a kind of an inner peace guru uh, and tennis coach who valued inner peace and valued inner calm uh, disproportionately to, to the diminishment of tactics and uh, solid tennis X's and O's. He, he valued touchy-feely aspects of the athlete's experience too much. It's not as though those aspects are irrelevant. You do need to have inner calm when you play, but I'm as valued that part of the game too much, and he didn't have the X and O uh, intelligence to lend to Djokovic on a consistent basis. And Vida, of course, he is that X and O rock. He is that strategist and tactician Djokovic needed to be able to work hard, focus on the basics, get away from that touchy-feely stuff, and rediscover his competitive appetite. So what Vida had to say about Djokovic's former coaches shed a lot of light on the mistakes Djokovic made in terms of surrounding himself with the right people, but we can all see and appreciate that once Djokovic came back to his senses and brought Vida back in the fold in April, there has been a steady, piece-by-piece restoration and renewal of Djokovic's game. Wimbledon, of course, was the culmination, and that's why Djokovic, barring any kind of injury, will be the favorite at the upcoming U.S. Open. So not just Vida's presence, but the absence and removal of flawed coaches, the people who led Djokovic down the wrong path, those two events in combination are, are responsible for Djokovic's return to the very top of men's tennis. All right, Matt, that was insightful, and you're right. We'll talk more Djokovic as the summer unfolds. And on that note, let's bring in Jane Voigt, Matt. Thanks again. This was brilliant. Thank you. So Jane Voigt is here, who's been partnering with us at the Tennis with an Accent coverage uh, for the last two majors. Welcome, Jane. Hi. How are you doing today, Sikib? Uh, it's good. Uh, it's just another day, and uh, the tennis season is kind of heading towards the U.S. Open. Uh, yeah. So let's uh, pick your brains, because you will be covering the Washington, D.C. City Open. Uh, just talk about your experience at this tournament for the last few years. Um, I, I think really what is a big moments that I'd like to talk about is, let's go back quite a few years, like 11 years, 2007. And uh, at that time, I, I was not credentialed, but I was writing a blog for Tennis.com. Just Peter Bodo was kind of trying to figure out how he could get some input from these hardcore tournaments that, as you say, lean up to the uh, U.S. Open. So anyway, I said I'd do it, and I come, and I'm sitting, and I'm seeing this guy serve, and he's serving just... He's connecting with the ball so high. We have these trees in Northern Virginia called crepe myrtles, and they're everywhere, and they're beautiful, and they come in all these lovely colors. And Anyway, he was connecting with the ball like three-quarters of the way up this tree. And I was like, my goodness, who is this guy? So I walked to the fence. I didn't know who it was. Two little kids were next to me, and I said, do you know where this kid is? And he said, yeah, that's John, isn't he? He said, Georgia. I was like, oh, okay, that's John Isner. I'm like, you know, I don't know who John Isner is. But later on that night, he was given a wild card, and that was the year he graduated from Georgia, and he was given a wild card. 
and he played Tim Henman opening night, and he beat him. And he beat him in uh, a third set tiebreak. And everybody, you know, D.C. is a small, small place. You know, it has a big reach with all the politics and everything like that. But as far as, it's a small place. But anyway, there were many people there from North Carolina. He's from Greensboro. And they were all cheering him on. And as the week progressed, he made, he just blew that place apart. He beat Mulsey's. He beat, I can't remember all the people he beat, but he beat everyone, and he beat everyone in a third set tiebreak. And then on the day of the final, he played Andy Roddick. And it was so hot. It can get so hot here and humid. And the courts are pretty fast. So that's another challenge for most players. But he didn't win the final, but he really made his name known um, mm. and, and hadn't been – hadn't been on the map at all, hadn't been on anybody's radar. And I think that year he also went on to the U.S. Open, perhaps with a wild card, I would think with a wild card. And he took a set off Federer. Yep. I remember that match. It was around a 16 match, I think, the Labor Day weekend. And uh-huh. I had tickets, so I watched that match. And, yeah. And, and Federer those years, I think his popularity was just ascending and the American crowd was rooting for him. But John had uh-huh. a fair share of his uh, – fans, and uh, the crowd was enjoying it. It was four center, you're right. He took a tiebreak of Roger, and I think right. that's probably the uh, one of the two, uh, maybe the only set Roger lost at uh, the tournament. Uh, it, so, that's just a very good memory for, you know, the audience here, and now John is coming into this event with a Wimbledon semifinal under his belt. Yeah. Uh, right. How do you see, you know, the big big fellow playing, because he's, he's still currently playing in the Atlanta draw. Uh, so you think right. his body is good enough to go through like four weeks of hardcore tennis? Um, you know, he's 31, is he now, or 30, 33, 31, yeah. 33? I think so, yeah, he's in that, in that age range, yeah. Yeah, that semifinal with uh, Anderson in Wimbledon had to have taken the ever-loving life out of him. Mentally, I'm sure... And physically, I'm sure. I mean, when he, his feet must have been a mess. And he's a big dude, so I can't see him recovering quickly from something like that. But hardcore tennis is the harbinger of ill health. And it's just a pounding, pounding surface, and it's not forgiving. And uh, there's some, I mean, Zverev is very young. Uh, Kyle Edmund is going to be here. He's young. Um, Denis Shapovalov, Tsitsipas, those young guys. And Francis Tiafo, he's going to be on fire here because the JTCC, the Junior Tennis Champion Center, um, is with it, it's inside the Beltway, and that's where he grew up. That's where his father was a maintenance man, and they, you know, he would go there after school, and they threw him a tennis racket, and they said, "Here, go out on the court while I finish up the job." And he hit around with the people that were in the program there, and that's how he got his start in tennis. Oh. And his buddy, his buddy Dennis Kudlow, they're going to be playing doubles together, and so that'll, you know, those young guys are, you know, you don't have to ask them a couple of times, you know, to step up. And they're going to step up. I know Tiafo much more of a chance than Kudla, but um, 
I can't see being four weeks on hard court before you get to the U.S. Open being anything but bad for John Isner. Yeah, and I think you took a lot of names, and this is going to be a deep draw, uh, you know, a loaded draw on the men's side, especially with uh, a certain Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka, I believe right. they have been given wild cards. You're looking forward to seeing those fellows back in the draw? Yes. Andy Murray was here, was supposed to play. He played here in 2016, was it? I can't. I think so. He lost what to Dabashvili in one of those uh, years, either 16 he or 15. He lost yeah. to that. He lost in the opening round. And uh, that was a bad year, number one, uh, the Summer Olympics. And uh, before the tournament got started, um, Birdich pulled out, Kyrgyz pulled out, the Bryan brothers pulled out, um, Del Potro pulled out. And he's a two-time champion here and very well loved here. Hmm. Um, so I think there are a lot of people who are going to come in here and it is the first big hardcore tournament, you know, yep. It's a, but it's a 500 level. It's the only 500 level ATP match tournament, I'm sorry, in the United States. So it's, it's not a, you know, uh, it's a, it's a big tournament and they're getting, it's getting better and better every year. I mean, I have never seen a draw this deep. Yeah. I, I think the, instead of saying who's there, it's easy to say the only, three or four big names that are missing uh, in D.C. would be, I think, uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I think uh, if you look like mm-hmm. there's Luka Pui is there, I think Kevin mm-hmm. Anderson is there, Sasha Zverev is there, mm-hmm. so I think it's, this is a very legit field. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyone else are you looking forward to while you're covering uh, for, your, for your blog there? Any 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 other player that you, that you could think of that you could inform our audience of uh, who, who, who could make a move in D.C.? Well, it'll be interesting to see if Sloane Stevens could repeat. Mm-hmm. She's uh, going to be seated number two, and it'll. I hope that Wozniacki does come. She's said that in the past that she would come and has not. Um, Ekaterina Makarova was going to be here. She's also um, a champion here, but it'll be interesting to see uh, Donna Vekic. I can't remember seeing her here. Um, Andrea Petkovic is, you know, ranked 91, you know, and had a good run at Wimbledon. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Caroline Dolhide. Uh, she's ranked outside the 100, but I think she has a lot of potential to make some moves on American hard courts. And uh, on the men's side, I, uh, I'm looking over the draw right now. I'm sorry. I really always look forward to seeing Mission's Zverev, and uh, I'd really want to see Denis Shapovalov too. I yeah, those are two, two, two of the lefty players, and uh, I I spoke with Mission Zverev a few weeks ago, and actually a week ago in Rhode Island. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. I think from the media perspective, I would say you can request a nice interview with him if you can, because he's uh, he really appreciates you know the overall picture. He had a tough loss when I spoke to him in Newport. And he asked mm-hmm. me to stick around for like half an hour, but he gave me very insightful answers. And of course, oh, his game really? is his, his game is like throwback serve and volley. You know, I love it's, it. It's, yeah, you don't see that kind of uh, game anymore on the tour. Uh, right. So yeah, Jane, I think that, that those are some good insights, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, we'll be uh, we'll be getting some you know great coverage from you as usual. Uh, you are covering this event for the eleventh time, and. Uh, 
maybe we'll have you for a podcast to to relive how the finals weekend went. Sure, sure. This is a um a, a, I think they're going to celebrate the 50th year here too. And wow, so uh, it it's a big one. I think the first one was in 1969 and Donald Dell who used to run the ATP um and his friend John Harris, they're the ones who uh you know, started the tournament. And uh, Arthur Ashe, they wanted him to play. And Dell and Ashe are, were friends, were lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. And when Ashe said, yeah, he'd play, but he only would play if it was in a public park. So that's why it is held in Rock Creek Park, which is on National Forest land. And that half the profit goes to a Washington Tennis and Education Foundation, which brings in kids with, um, you know, uh, underserved youth from the area, and they learn life skills and they learn tennis skills. So there's, you know, some nice backstory too. No, that's good to know because, uh, you know, this has been a mainstay on the U.S. hardcore uh, calendar, you know, for the men. Now it's a joint event. And uh, right. you know uh, who's who of right. tennis has won it, like the Lendels, Agassiz, McIndoes, everybody has yeah. this event for a, for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be very. in town for that celebration, so we'll see. All right, looking forward to your tweets and your articles uh, for this week in DC, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the podcast and we can chat about how the week went. Thanks for joining okay. us. Okay, thank you, Sakib. Thank you for asking me. All right, so we have Sanket Singhwal joining us uh, to preview the India versus England series. This is a marquee matchup in cricket. Uh, thanks, Sanket, for taking out time to talk uh, some more cricket with us. Yeah, always a pleasure. So, India is uh, already uh, into a warm-up game, which is two days old. This is a long version of cricket uh, we are getting ready for, which is a test series. And uh, what are the, uh, some of the early takeaways of uh, the, this, this warm-up game? Uh, some Indian batsmen played well and some did not. So, uh, what are the early signs, Sanket? Yeah, I mean, I think as expected and as we have spoken about previously, Shikhar Dhawan once again has his, has technical issues that have been exposed in these conditions, getting out for a first ball duck. Viteshwar Pujara has been playing county cricket for the last four or five years. He continues to struggle in these conditions and, I mean, he's not shown any signs of improvement whether it be in county cricket or now in the warm-up match. So again, I think his place is also very much under the scanner. Murli Vijay, I think his form has been a cause of concern in recent times. And he, he showed some signs of form. He scored a fairly patient half-century. And I mean, I, I didn't really watch the match because that was not really available here for streaming. But I mean, from by all accounts, he was back to his patient uh, self. He was, he was leaving balls outside the off-stump and waiting for the ball and all that. Sort of stuff. So I think the signs are looking good as far as Murli Vijay is concerned. And Brad Kohli has obviously had his issues in English conditions in the past that are well documented. Uh, looked in imperious touch by all accounts. He scored a very fluent half century before getting out to what was a slightly waft outside the off stump to delivery that was pitched uh, slightly wider. But that, that, that's the sort of stuff that you expect in a warm-up match. Uh, the key thing for Virat Kohli was that he wasn't beaten on defence like he was in the past tours. And you would expect him to be a lot more tighter uh, when the test series comes around. And Jinke Rahane didn't have a great outing, but 
he scored at least scored some runs for the India A match in the in the against England in England Lions a cup a week ago. So he still has some runs under the belt. So I think the two guys who are under pressure are Dhawan and Pujara, especially with KL Rahul, who I probably believe was behind the, these two in the packing order, which is why he was batting at number six, while these two were batting at the usual positions. But he, he scored some runs now at number six, so that will probably create some selection dilemmas for them, and maybe Rahul could replace one of them. I think Pujara is probably under more threat of being dropped rather than Dhawan, because Dhawan does have 100 against Afghanistan in the last test. So yeah, I think it will probably be a toss-up between Rahul and Pujara for the number three slot. And just to give some context, I mean, uh, what's this English... Uh county bowling attack like again with the indian side is measured up uh, usually uh, you know these matches don't really count for much but uh, is this bowling lineup a quality bowling lineup you know, it's a county team uh, how well do you know about this bowling lineup they have got matt coles i think uh, who's i think being talked about as uh, a fairly decent prospect i mean i remember talking to a few englishmen who follow county cricket quite closely a few years ago and they said that he was one of the brightest prospects in the game it's kind of tapered off a little bit obviously this is not their first choice attack because they, their first choice attack would have had jamie porter who was, was, was actually the test squad that was picked today by england uh, and, and one more guy i think his name is probably just sort of escapes me escapes my mind right now but uh, yeah this is not the first choice attack but they still have cole so i believe is a decent bowler and the other guys, I think they're fairly, I mean, unknown quantities. So that's otherwise, apart from Matt Coles, probably the second string attack of sorts. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, okay, I mean, it's not, it's not the worst attack that he could feel. Essex, some of the top top sides in county cricket, they are the, I believe they are the defending champions. So they are a division one side. So even their second level is actually quite decent compared to some of the other sides that India have got in the past on in warm up matches. And how is this for a surface for the Indians to get used to the conditions? Is it like a very, is it a testy surface for uh, you know tourists, or is it something you know not giving a good view of what uh, what is to come? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the pitch I believe did have a fair amount of grass. I think there was something like eight eight millimeters of grass uh, on the surface on the, on the morning of the match that was yesterday, and uh, the ball seemed around quite considerably at least for the first couple of sessions. I believe the movement sort of died out with the old, older ball, as you would normally expect in, in in Test match cricket in the longer format with the red ball. And I mean, but yeah, I mean, I, I believe the players were tested enough, especially the batsmen on the, on, on the first morning. Uh, without Kohli, especially the conditions that he was that he scored a half century in, they were quite testing. So I think that this is definitely a very positive sign for Virat Kohli to take into the series and for Murli Vijay as well. And, and, and uh, I think the other guys, they probably played with a slightly older ball. So perhaps you can look into KL Rahul's half century, which came at number six with regards to his prospects of batting in the top three against Anderson and Broad and those guys uh, when it comes to the test matches. But yeah, I mean, uh, runs on the belt are always better rather than not scoring any of them. So yeah, definitely something to take for India from this match. But yeah, I think the conditions for the test match, I think probably be somewhat similar to the pitch that they had here because they had plenty of grass surface, but the, due to the hot weather, the grass just tends to dry out pretty quickly. So I think, and that that might be the case test, test match too, because I mean, the weather, the this heat wave in the UK is expected to continue for the next two weeks, I believe. So I think the, the test match could well be played under very hot weather. So even if the pitch is really green, it might seem around a little bit on, on day one, but you would expect it to dry out and possibly take turn uh, as the match progresses. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see.
at least weather-wise, these conditions could be, you know, very Indian-like. Uh, now, let's can, before we conclude this conversation, let's talk about the English squad. It has been announced. Are there any surprises, according to you? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise is, I mean, it's probably not a surprise since, I mean, the, the national head coach, Trevor Bailey's had actually talked about this uh, after the continuing the ODI series. But to me, I think it still comes as a surprise because, uh, I mean, his cap- his county captain, that is uh, Andrew Gale, the Yorkshire captain had uh, publicly spoke, given a stat- statement yesterday that Adil Rashid is not interested in playing test cricket and that is um, unlikely to get recalled. But uh, as as Bailey spoke about uh, on the after the ODI series, he has indeed been recalled, presumably because he dismissed Virat Kohli a couple of times in the ODIs and actually did pretty well in the series. I think he was instrumental in both the matches that England won. Uh, in the ODIs, but yeah, Test match cricket is obviously a completely different ball game altogether. I think the major uh, point of controversy with regards to Rashid's selection is that he had actually he had actually retired or uh, taken a sort of a break, uh, so to speak, from the first class game and asked for a specific red, white ball only contract with Yorkshire, which is why the Yorkshire uh, cricket board is quite annoyed that he has been picked for the English Test side despite not making himself available in the same format for his county side, which is totally understandable. Uh, and there's, there's naturally been quite a lot of outrage from the county game. Uh, county game. Although other than that, I don't think there have been any surprises as such. So Chris Wolfe is generally a part of the side. He, he is currently out injured. So I think Jamie Porter, the Essex team that I, that I just spoke about uh, when I was talking about the Essex team, he has indeed been included. He's, uh, he's probably in line for a debut. Sam Curran, who made his debut in the last test against Pakistan, has been included. So you've got two guys there who have a test experience, who have a test match experience of one one test between them alongside the two senior pros in Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad. So it's it's an inexperienced pack. And Moeen Ali is back, who did well against India in 2014. So, yeah, I think these these are the bowlers. Their pick pass batting lineup, I think, is as always. You've got Cook uh, alongside the... Uh, Keaton Jennings at the top, Joe Root, Davin Malan has retained his place after some scores for the England Lions, and obviously Johnny Beresteau, Josh Butler, who himself has been a, was a selection based on the T20 format uh, uh, against Pakistan, but he he ended up justifying his selection by doing quite well against Pakistan. So it would be interesting to see whether Adil Rashid can do the same. So yeah, that's that's, that's the lineup. Hey Sanket, that was insightful as ever. Thanks for doing this, and we plan to have you back on this forum once again as the series unfolds and reaches. You know, some of its uh, uh, intriguing moments. Thank you very much. Uh, Absolutely. Always a pleasure.